Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 47 and 48, Impact of NATO's enlargement and the future of Europe. it has always been a question of uh, defense and security when it comes to the current europe's affairs and i believe we have discussed a few of the episodes in which we have briefly mentioned about the role of nato in certain events uh, especially in russia ukraine war as well uh, but we haven't really taken a constructive criticism path as well as uh, you know the good side as well of the defense and security efforts especially through the nato that are taking place in europe So today to take a deep dive into this topic we we have with us Dr James Goldgeiger. Hi James. Welcome to Hello, the podcast. Hello, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. <laughs> so yeah, uh I'm glad to really have you on the podcast firstly uh because I read uh, a lot of your articles. Um I mean it's the first time I saw a very critical commentary and a detailed analysis which was thoughtfully given. Uh, about nato and uh, i hope to you know kind of extend that uh, discussion during this podcast great well thanks for having me on yes uh, so yeah before we take a deep dive into the topic can you tell us briefly about yourself uh, your background your journey in the sector and how you ended up being what you are uh, as a one of the prominent uh, experts in this domain Well, I've been interested in NATO for a long time. I've been interested in US-European relations for a long time. Um I did a senior thesis in college on NATO's nuclear doctrine. Um so uh and that goes back many, 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 many years. Uh and then moved away from it a little bit, but I I worked in the US government in the mid 90s and uh I came out of that experience wanting to write about something that I hadn't worked on directly but that was of great interest to me and I ended up uh writing a book that came out in 1999 on the US decision making process leading up to the first round of NATO enlargement post cold war uh, the the inclusion of Poland Hungary and the Czech Republic in March of 1999 and uh it was a very controversial decision Uh, there were a lot of academics who didn't like it i learned from my interviews there were a lot of people in the us government who were uh unhappy with that decision and policy for a variety of reasons and so so i just became interested in in the role that nato enlargement could play in european security across the continent with former communist countries uh, and then also interested in sort of trying to think through what it would mean for US Russia relations the west's relations with Russia more broadly and uh I can't say I thought I'd still be writing about these issues in 2023 but 
you know, NATO enlargement has remained, of course, an important topic. And so it's one that I keep coming back to. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is a great uh, start, I think, uh, you gave uh, from your journey itself. So how has NATO's enlargement affected the security landscape in Europe from your perspective? Well, you know, this, the, at the end of the Cold War, um, the Soviet Union collapsed in, at the end of 1991. And there were big decisions that had to be made about how to address uh, the new uh, set of issues that were arising in Central and Eastern Europe and in Russia and, and the rest of the countries that emerged from uh, the Soviet Union. And the the guiding ideas in the United States anyway, were that, and this was the George H.W. Bush administration. I mean, the central animating idea was that from a US perspective that the United States had um, joined the fight in World War I, had left Europe at the end of World War I, and then there was a World War 20 years later, the United States, of course, uh, deeply engaged in ensuring the victory of the allies in World War II, and uh, as it had been in World War I, uh, and that the United States then made a decision after World War II to stay in Europe and to try to ensure the security and stability of Western Europe in the face of the Soviet control of Eastern Europe. And so at the end of the Cold War in the Bush administration, despite the fact there were a lot of people saying, well, why do we still need NATO? Because after all, uh, the Warsaw Pact, which it was you know, its main adversary during the Cold War, uh, has disappeared. And maybe we don't need NATO anymore. And the Bush administration felt that those lessons of the 20th century that, you know, the U.S. leaving Europe had been bad for uh, international security uh, and that the U.S. staying in Europe after World War II had been good uh, for European security, that the United States should stay engaged. And the only way to do that was through NATO, because the United States is not a member uh, of the European Union, for example. And it was viewed that the what was then called the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe and is now the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe would be too weak for this. And so, so NATO was seen as the, as the vehicle for continued US influence in European security uh, and as a way to reach out to the Central and Eastern Europeans. And so that began the effort to think about what was the best way to engage with the former communist countries of Central and Eastern Europe, and how could NATO engage with Russia? And that was really what, what animated uh, the alliance during the 1990s. Interesting. I think the one important point you mentioned was about the vehicle of influence in the European security matters. Uh, so from that perspective, and I believe every nation on this planet uh, has their priorities for the national interest and you know that's where the geopolitical drivers come in so what are the main geopolitical drivers uh, behind nato's expansion in europe well you have both the interest from the west and the interest from the east so first of all it's it's hugely important to understand that the central and eastern europeans desperately wanted to join nato i mean they'd been on the yes. other side of the iron curtain they were on the wrong side 
of the dividing line the Soviets drew in Europe. They didn't get the chance to live freely like the West Europeans did during the Cold War. They didn't get the chance for that prosperity. They wanted to be in NATO and the European Union. And, you know, partly it was wanting to join the West and be part of the West. Partly it was because their fear that Russia might reemerge as a threat one day, uh, as it as it in fact has. So, yes. so they were eager to join. Uh, from the Western perspective, the, the, the question was, how do you ensure security and stability across Central and Eastern Europe? And this was a big issue in the early 1990s. There were concerns about whether German unification, for example, would lead to a more powerful Germany that, you know, might um, create problems for its neighbors, you know, given the historical record. Uh, but most importantly, there was the war that had broken out in the former Yugoslavia. And yes. there was a fear that that type of violence that emerged in the former Yugoslavia could emerge elsewhere in Central and Eastern Europe. And so there was a feeling that bringing those countries closer together to NATO, first through something that was called the Fart Partnership for Peace, that was an effort to engage the militaries of Central and Eastern Europe. And then later on, putting these countries on a, on a path to, to NATO membership, that that would create the kind of security and stability in Eastern Europe that had we had seen in Western Europe after the end of World War II. So, so, so that was the impetus from both sides, and uh, and then you 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 know you had the remaining question of how was that going to affect relations with Russia, uh, and there were huge efforts on the part of the West to try to reassure Russia that it wasn't this wasn't directed at them, uh, and that and the West took a number of steps, NATO took a number of steps, the U.S. took a number of steps, including reducing the number of troops that it had in Europe all to try to assuage Russian concerns, which um, was a very difficult thing to do and certainly contributed to a deterioration in the West's relations with Russia. But I don't believe, and we can get into it if you want, I, I don't believe it was the only reason why problems emerged between the West and Russia. All right. And uh, you know, just to uh, mention this uh, point uh, out of curiosity as well, uh, because we have recently seen uh, Ukraine and there are several other nations uh, which have been, you know, uh, are, I would say, an aspiring members to join NATO. So how does aspiring uh, nations uh, who want to join NATO, such as like Ukraine, uh, Georgia as well, view their potential membership's impact on their security? Because uh, I believe the way Russian dominance has been acted on this com on these countries uh, is is has not been so great, you know, uh, for their cooperation. So, what is what are your thoughts on this? So, you know, the challenge has been as NATO has moved across Europe and incorporated more and more members. I mean, you know, NATO at at the end of the Cold War had sixteen members. Um, and it now has 31, and when Sweden joins, it will have 32. So it will, it will have doubled in terms of the number of members uh, since yes. the end of the Cold War. And as it's moved across Europe, um, you've had 
we've seen two things. We've seen security for the countries that have gotten into NATO. They are much safer and more secure than they would be if they were not in NATO. And we've seen an increasing antagonism with Russia. And that really, you know, now centers on Ukraine, where Ukraine, it's important to remember, prior to 2014, when the Russians invaded Ukraine at that time, yes. there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm among the population of Ukraine. There wasn't a lot of interest in joining NATO. The, 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 it, it wasn't seen as hugely important for Ukraine, which sat there between the West and Russia and was looking to try to have good relations with both. Yes. And the 2014 invasion changed that. Ukraine really realized, the Ukrainians realized, oh my goodness, you know, Russia is has taken part of our territory, has designs on more territory, and the only way we can be safe is if we join NATO. And so then you had much greater interest in joining NATO on the part of Ukraine. And yes. a lot of reluctance in the West. I mean, the West wasn't really... I mean, up until February 24th of 2022, when Putin expanded the war in Ukraine, um, the West, you know, had had paid lip service to the idea that Ukraine could and even would join NATO at some point. Uh, but uh, that it wasn't really a live issue for NATO. Uh, but the expanded invasion uh has changed that conversation where there's much greater thinking about the importance of bringing Ukraine into NATO in order to protect it from a continual cycle of Russian aggression against the country uh, and a, deter a deterrence of Russian aggression in the way that Russia is deterred from attacking countries like Estonia and Poland because those countries are members of NATO. So. Uh, the dynamics really prior to February 24th, 2022, were not really any kind of real movement on trying to bring Ukraine into NATO. And now the question really is, can it be done? Can, it, can, the, war, can the war end if the war ends? Can it be done when the war ends? You know, there's still a lot of debate about it, but certainly the Ukrainians are very eager because... They want the security. They, 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 they don't want to keep facing the prospect of continual Russian military aggression. Yes. Uh, I mean, this is a very good point you mentioned, uh, giving a context on the historical things as well. Because even I have seen that uh, the interest of Ukraine's uh, uh, you know, potential membership in NATO, uh, this aspirations actually started from you know past decade only, uh, more and more, I would say. Uh, but before that, you know, I, I'm just, you know, kind of comparing in a global political level uh, where a country like Ukraine and a country like even Qatar, you know, uh, this like Qatar is even a lot smaller, you know, uh, in size. Uh, but even though such a small country, uh, one thing they did right was strengthening the diplomatic ties, uh, which I believe even Ukraine could have done. Uh, back in those days, of course, when they uh, got, you know, separated from Russia. Uh, so what are your thoughts in general? You know, this, this question is really out of your curiosity. Uh, 
uh, because you know i i know that you know you really have an amazing uh, critical thoughts on such issues uh, so do you do you think like uh, if ukraine would have uh, strengthened its diplomatic instruments uh, since you know long time i mean not not now but since decades then the situation might would have been different actually well i think you know again prior to 2014 ukraine was trying to develop relations good relations both with the european union and with russia um it you know it understood the situation that it was in and and there were periods you know in in the 2000s and and certainly in 2013 2014 early 2014 when it had leaders who were decidedly pro russian and and wanted uh to ensure a, a good relationship with russia but i think even for the leaders that were more desiring of a of a closer relationship with the west uh they understood the the position that they were in so i think the 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 real issue is the russian unwillingness to accept the borders that became internationally recognized in 1991 with the collapse of the soviet union you know russia became an independent country yes uh, it has internationally recognized borders and ukraine is a separate country it is an independent country its borders were recognized in 1991 as well and it has sought the sovereignty like any country it has sought to have sovereignty over the territory that it is recognized to have and the russians haven't accepted that the russians believe i mean certainly putin has made clear that he believes that ukraine belongs to russia uh and so it's kind of hard to live as a neighbor a small country as a neighbor of a big country that thinks you belong to it uh and that is willing to use force uh yes. to try to achieve that goal and and you know keep in mind this is the main reason the united nations was founded in 1945 after the events of the 1920s and 1930s and of course into the 40s the the un was founded on the idea that large countries should not be able to cross borders with military force and take territory from their weaker neighbors that that's what had occurred in the 20s and 30s yes and that was what the un was designed to prevent that that countries would agree they don't, you don't do that um and when for example in 1990 when uh, iraq invaded its neighbor kuwait uh, the international community uh joined together and in 1991 uh the um united states uh and other countries went to war against iraq to uh ensure that it left kuwait and that kuwait returned to being a sovereign independent country and is the same principle here the russians invaded and you know this is a total violation of of international law of agreements that the russians themselves had signed over the decades uh and you know this is the central problem this the, this question of can russia whose 1991 borders you know this is a big <laughs> it's a big country you look at the borders yeah. you know yes, they yes. got a lot 
they, they it doesn't seem like they need more territory. Uh, That's they true. Feel that they do. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And until they are willing to live within those 1991 internationally recognized borders, we are going to have a problem. Yes. And, uh, you know, just to look at it from the other lens uh, of Russia, I would say, in what ways has NATO's enlargement influenced Russia's, Russia's foreign policy and its relationship with the West? Yeah, you know, this, this is certainly a, a hot-button issue, and, and there are certainly lots of people who believe that NATO, through its enlargement, provoked Russia. Um, I, You know, it's hard. One of the challenges of, of thinking through this issue is that from, from Russia's perspective, there were a number of things that happened between, let's say, 1999 and 2004 uh, that were of great concern to Russia and its conception of its security. So, so you had the first two rounds of NATO's post-Cold War enlargement in 1999 and 2004. Uh, three countries came in in 99 and another seven in, in 2004, including Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which the Russians uh, had uh, had occupied and, and uh, forcibly incorporated into the Soviet Union. Um, the, at the same time, uh, you know, the first round of post-Cold War NATO enlargement in March of 1999, at the same time, there was also the NATO war against Serbia over Kosovo, which was of much greater concern to Russian President Boris Yeltsin, uh, who uh, was very angry uh, about this attack on uh, a Russian ally. Uh, 2002, the United States unilaterally withdrew from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, uh, which um, the Russians feared would have a negative impact on their deterrent capability. They were upset about that. They were upset about the United States going to war against Iraq in 2003 without UN Security Council authorization. Uh, and then in 2004, you had the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, uh, changing government and uh, the Russians believed that the United States was behind it and that, you know, they were coming after the Putin regime next. And so it's hard to disentangle NATO enlargement from, from all these other issues from a Russian perspective. Meanwhile, you had the increasing authoritarianism in Russia itself that was of becoming of greater and greater concern to the West. But I, I think when it comes to NATO enlargement, my, my view is that the Russians had largely accepted those first two rounds of enlargement and they didn't like it, but they were accommodating to it. The problem came in 2008. Uh, NATO had a summit in Bucharest in 2008 and the George W. Bush administration were tr was trying to put Ukraine and Georgia on a more formal path to membership through what were called membership action plans. The French and Germans opposed this and there was a compromise language uh, in the NATO summit declaration that said that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. So the problem was, it was a statement that really antagonized the Russians. I mean, this was, this was viewed as very provocative and it was something that the then ambassador to Russia, US ambassador to Russia, Bill Burns, who's now the CIA director, this was something that he was warning against from Moscow, that this, that a, that, 
putting Ukraine and Georgia on a path to membership would be uh, very provocative. Yes. So he had this statement that they will become members of NATO, but they weren't really put on a path. And so what you had then in the years that followed, and remember, Russia went to war with Georgia in August of 2008. What you had was this situation where NATO, NATO's stated policy was that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. But as I mentioned earlier, they weren't put on any path. And there really wasn't any real prospect that they were going to join. So I, that combination created a huge amount of insecurity uh, for those two countries. And um, I think, you know, created the options for Russia to try to ensure that they would never uh, join those institutions. As I said before, you know, Ukraine really up until 2014, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm among the population of Ukraine for, for joining anyway. Uh, and so if Russia had not attacked Ukraine, I don't believe we would, I mean, we would still just have that empty statement from 2008 probably, but it wouldn't mean anything and there wouldn't be any real discussion. Ukraine wouldn't be on a path and and there wouldn't have been the interest in it. Um, and Russia created it through the military aggression, the invasions of yes. Ukraine and the war with Georgia. Yes. Uh, this is a very interesting point you mentioned about uh, see, a current CIA director, William Burns. I believe he, a lot of his statements that he made uh, previously have been true in terms of you know foreign policy, uh, politics, because um, uh, the kind of, uh, I think, the research that he brings in, uh, it's it's really valuable. Uh, and I actually didn't know that he even mentioned about this thing as well. Uh, you know, the NATO's uh, enlargement. Uh, so yeah, thank you for mentioning that because I think it's an important po point as well because we you know we are coming uh, to kind of a larger part of that discussion now. So what are the challenges and benefits of integrating Balkan states into NATO? And how has this impacted regional stability? Because we have seen issues like, you know, Kosovo, uh, which keep uh, on and off, you know, igniting, I would say, uh, on a lot of levels. Uh, even we see Bosnia as well. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, before I do that, just just one last thing on Bill Burns, since you since you brought it up. Uh, he, yeah. he, he wrote a memoir called Back Channel, came out a few years ago, uh, 2018, okay. I think. Maybe and he 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 got an he he filed uh, requests to get a number of his uh, cables and memos that he had written while he was in government declassified and they're up on the website of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. There's where he used to be the president. There's a there's a book website and a couple. What we know from his uh, from both the book and what he put on the on the website is that he was writing memos back home. To Washington from Moscow in 2007, 2008 about this issue of Ukraine and Georgia. Uh, okay. On the Balkans, yeah, you know, you have a situation where you, you know, we've seen uh, a number of countries join NATO, uh, Albania, Croatia, uh, North Macedonia, and Montenegro. And, um, yes. and, you know, we also have uh, you know, we have countries uh, 
the, and and Slovenia, uh, you know, and Croatia and Slovenia, members of the European Union. Um, you know, yes. there's, you know, there's the same effort there to use NATO and the European Union as institutions that can try to try to try to create stability in the region. It is complicated because of the. 1999 war that NATO conducted against Serbia to protect the population of Kosovo, the continued tensions between Serbia and Kosovo, uh, the continued Russian meddling uh, in the region. Um, and, you know, Russia continues to have close ties with the government in Serbia. And so I would say this project, you know, it's there's a mixed there's a mixed record uh, of this project. Um, I, you know, for, for countries like Croatia and Slovenia, it's been huge. Uh, you know, their their ability to join NATO and the European Union um, has meant, uh, you know, that they've been able to make tremendous progress um, over the decades. And meanwhile, you know, there's still these tensions uh, between Serbia and Kosovo, and it's... Um, I mean, you know, these were huge flashpoints in the 1990s and you had the Balkan Wars yes. and you had a lot of U.S. attention in the region. Um, the U.S. attention is elsewhere now, so there's not as much attention in the region. The European Union, of course, you know, is hugely interested um, in stability uh, in the Balkans, but there's no question that there's been a, a very mixed record of, uh, of with some countries being able to make a lot of progress and other countries uh, being held back for a variety of reasons and still, you know, especially with respect to the European Union and limbo, being in limbo. And, you know, in the case of Serbia, you know, really um, a lack of, of progress in moving forward with that relationship. Yes. And, uh, I mean, this question is, uh, again, you know, out of my curiosity and research, uh, that I thought uh, would be great to kind of put put in over here uh, is because Turkey is is one of the NATO members I believe whose interest a lot of times you know don't really align uh, in terms of uh, what the European uh, nations have in common uh, in terms of decision making. So how what role does Turkey play in NATO's expansion and how does this affect the alliances uh, dynamics? Yeah, what a, you know, what a what an interesting issue. Um, so complicated. Uh, Turkey, because of its location, is hugely strategically important for NATO. You know, there are a lot of people who get very frustrated with Turkey. There are a lot of people who, you know, I mean, you have President President Erdogan in Turkey who, you know, has has moved that country in a in an authoritarian direction and and yes. It's um, it is a it has a very difficult relationship with the West. He has his own, you know, he he has his own interests, and he has sought to position Turkey more between the West and Russia. You know, he's yes. he's he's sought to have good relations with Russia, although he's also been very supportive of Ukraine in yes. this war so you know it, it it is really complex he's he's played a role in the um in in the in the initial establishment of a grain deal uh between Russia and Ukraine he he also has 
um, to the export of brain. He also has a lot of interest in the Caucasus in Armenia and Azerbaijan. He's, you know, uh, you know, Turkey plays a major role uh, in the Caucasus uh, as, a, as a major player. He's got a major interest in Central Asia. Um, so it, it's a major actor. It, it, often Turkey is at odds with its Western partners. Yes. Uh, particularly in in their you know in, in the relationship with Russia, uh, Turkey held up the uh, Finland's accession to NATO for a long time, uh, you know, but then you know allowed that to go forward, and we're still waiting uh, for Turkey and Hungary to approve of Sweden coming in. So, uh, so there's no question it's it's difficult, but uh, but. NATO is a consensus-based organization, so it it, it can yes. only operate uh, with consensus. So it needs all of its members uh, to be on the same page at, uh, when it wants to move forward. And uh, you know, people complain, "Oh, we should be kicking some members out of NATO." Well, there's no provision for that. You you know, a, a member state can give notice if it wants to leave, but if it doesn't want to leave, it's there. It's there's there's not a it's not yes. a provision to kick a country out. So yeah. I think you got to have a situation where the West has to work as best as it can with this government in Turkey uh, and uh, try uh, to move forward where it can, recognizing that Turkey is going to frustrate the West uh, at moments uh, as it has uh, over the recent years. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.